Shattered Bonds, a podcast that tells the story of a family's journey to redemption, a family that has been torn apart by secrets, lies, betrayal, and violence, a family that has to confront the past and the present and find a way to heal and reconnect. It's an exploration of the human condition, of the power of love and forgiveness, of the resilience of the human spirit. It's a podcast that will make you laugh, cry, think, and feel. This is Part 8, Family Reunion and Unspoken Tensions. Doris and Scott show up at 5, descending from the main airport concourse to the baggage claim area in an elevator. Scott is pushing a wheelchair. Doris seated before him in a black turtleneck, her clunky red purse clutched firmly to her lap. David watches them emerge from the elevator and is seized by a sudden panic. They haven't seen him yet, and for a moment he has the urge to hide, to duck down behind a stack of oversized bags and let them wander past. But he doesn't, because he's a grown-up. Hiding is something Scott would do. It is the act of a single man, a man with no responsibilities other than to himself. David is a father, and thus reliable, steady, a man who does the right thing. And besides, Christopher is next to him, holding his hand, and how would it look to his son if David bolted from his own family, took off in a desperate crouch, weaving serpentine, racing for the parking lot. He looks down, sees his son still flushed from his victory at the dojo, lost in some private daydream. If he were being honest, David would admit that he brought the boy as a kind of human shield, a conversation piece that will keep the focus of this family reunion off the box of ashes that Scott and Doris are hauling around in their carry-on, ashes that have now crossed state lines, ashes that represent the final remains of his recently deceased father. Having Christopher here will keep things light, he hopes. In this way, the boy is an offering, a sacrifice. He steps forward, waving. Well, well, he says. How's the flight? He leans down and kisses his mother on one fuzzy cheek. He and Scott eye each other for a moment before hugging. There is still, in those initial moments, the memory of childhood, a memory that makes the hug feel artificial, the way you feel when you're a kid and a grown-up offers to shake your hand. Children hit the people they love. They hold hands. They don't shake them. He feels Scott's body against his, at once familiar and foreign. Have you been working out? He asks when they separate. I started running, Scott tells him, and the phrase itself is symbolic on so many levels. Christopher? says David. Say hi to your grandmother. Christopher steps forward awkwardly. He has seen Doris only a few times in his life. She pats him on the head. Nice to see you, ma'am, he says. Ma'am, thinks David. Where did he get ma'am? First the praying, now the down-home politeness. Christopher might as well be a preacher's son for all the recognition David feels in these moments. Scott scoops the boy up, hugs him like a life preserver. I broke a board, Christopher tells him excitedly. I broke it with my fist. Wow, says Scott. Really? Christopher squirms and struggles, dropping to the ground. He reenacts the pivotal moment. Hi, he yells, thrusting his arm forward. David can see the confusion on his mother's face. She is not comfortable around children. They are too reckless, too loud. There's always the danger that they will break you somehow with their roughhousing and crazy pell-mell running. He's so big, she says. David nods, though to him his son is tiny, a runt. 
They've talked about steroids, he and Tracy, about growth hormones. But she says, have faith, he'll grow. They head over to the conveyor and stand waiting for their luggage. The Land Rover is parked in short-term parking. Tracy, Chloe, and Sam are at home making last-minute preparations, Doris proofing the house. Did you bring the... He asks Scott in a quiet voice. Ashes, he means ashes. They're in your mother's suitcase, Scott says. You checked them? Dad's ashes? Apparently you have to, says Scott. They don't want them in the passenger compartment. Like maybe you'd use them as a weapon or something. It's beyond me, but you can't argue with these people, airport security. They'll just take you to some fluorescent room and stick their hand up your ass. How's the flight, Mom? David asks. His son is fascinated by Doris's wheelchair. He's hanging off it, his butt inches above the floor, kicking his legs. I had to use the oxygen, she says, the chair jerking from Christopher's weight. Does he have to do that? Chris, says David. Can you go look for Grandma's luggage? Black, she says, with a red scarf around the handle. Chris runs to the mouth of the conveyor, watches as the bags are disgorged. I got you a room at the Bel Air, David tells her. They have beautiful grounds. As long as there's someone there who can bring me a bottle of wine, she says. I need a drink. David and Scott exchange a look. The look embodies in seconds the following conversation. David. She looks terrible. Has she been like this the whole time? Scott. You have no idea. David. Should we say something? The last thing I want is to confront her. It's easier to just let it go, muscle through the next week. I mean, it's not like she's going to change. Scott. So what? We just continue to look the other way, continue to open the bottles, to flush the cigarette butts, and say nothing, do nothing. David. I'll say something if you do, if you go first. Scott. It's exhausting, the whole thing. I'm exhausted. David. We're in this together now, though, right? You're not going to ditch me. Scott. You mean the way you ditched me years ago to deal with them all by myself, to fly around the country, to spend nights in the emergency room, to help him off the toilet, help him wipe his ass? David, don't lecture me about emergency rooms. I've been just as involved as you. Maybe not recently, but I have a family, responsibilities. Scott, if you say that word again, I'm going to punch you. I have responsibilities too. I wish we could just go back to being kids. I wish we could have our parents back. I wish, I wish, I wish... David, don't get emotional. I hate when you get emotional. Scott, God forbid you should be uncomfortable or emotional after your dad died. God forbid you should fall apart a little, show some kind of grief, lose control. For fuck's sake, go to pieces. David, do you really want to do this now? Here? Because if we're judging, I've got some things I could say about how you live your life. Scott, staring, reconsidering. David, staring, backing down. That one's mine, says Doris, pointing. Christopher grabs the suitcase, tries to muscle it from the conveyor, but it's too heavy. David goes over to help him. They ride home from the Burbank Airport in the Silver Land Rover, climbing Coldwater Canyon, turning onto Mulholland Drive. It is a low smog day, and from the hills they can see the swimming pools of the valley stretching out below them. There's a box in Doris's luggage filled with ashes, it is traveling at 31 miles per hour, just like the car. It remains at a resting temperature of 72 degrees, having been supercooled earlier by the luggage compartment of the 737. 
How strange it is to imagine your body traveling without you after death. The physical remains of what you once were, now reduced to a smaller, more portable size. David can sense the ashes with them in the car, can feel their import, their weight. He drives carefully on the windy roads, not wanting to imagine the contents shifting like the inside of an hourglass. They pull into the driveway of David's home, a large four-bedroom in Beverly Hills. It is the house of a successful man, a vice president. A house with a green lawn watered and mowed by Mexicans. A house with hedges and a swimming pool. He helps carry their bags inside. Christopher running ahead, yelling, We're here! We're here! Tracy comes out to greet them, smiling, laughter in her voice. She's wearing jeans and a knit top. Her hair is up, face fresh and welcoming. She greets Scott and Doris warmly, offers them something to drink. Seeing her, feeling her expansive, welcoming energy, David thinks, I can do this. We can, together. Thank God I'm not alone. I have my family to protect me from my family. Watching Tracy move between him and his mother and brother, like an offensive lineman throwing blocks for a running back. David loves his wife more than anything. She will save him. The kids swarm around, lit up by the novelty, wanting to show off, to be noticed, appreciated. He can see discomfort on his mother's face. It's too much for her. She likes quiet, calm. She wants a glass of wine, a comfortable chair. The crazy thing is he remembers her being fun when he was a kid, playful. He remembers her as a woman who wasn't afraid to get down on the floor and get dirty, a mother who liked to prompt her kid's imagination, a woman who had fun. But how did she turn into this frightened, joyless shell? But of course, he knows how. Two decades of booze, a decade of sickness and struggle, all leading to this moment, isolation, widowhood. His mother has become the kind of person who feels alone even when she's surrounded by others because her filter is gone. She doesn't live in this world, remember. She lives on the moon, on an asteroid orbiting high above Earth. And now that her husband is dead, she is alone up there, spinning around on a cold, lifeless rock, stuck on the dark side of the planet. They settle into the living room. Scott and Doris sit on the sofa. David and Tracy are on chairs like it's an interview, like Scott and Doris have applied for some domestic position, butler, maid. Tracy has Sam on her lap, and he's fumbling with her breast, trying to free it from her shirt. The older kids have been dispatched to the yard to give the grown-ups a chance to talk. Promises have been made to get them to go. Scott is on the hook for a ball game and to read some books and see Chloe's dollhouse and whatever else the kids can think of. So, says Tracy, after the final decibel of kitty chaos recedes, Nobody speaks. How was the flight? She continues. Doris shrugs. It's only two hours. I thought it would be longer. No, says David. Just two. Which surprised me, really, says Doris. Because I thought two hours, I can't understand why you don't come up more. Ah, thinks David. A trap. Tracy, the offensive lineman, steps forward, intercepting the rush. We would love to she says, but with the new baby, three kids are so much harder than two. Doris sips her wine. Her eyes tell the story, that look of wounded judgment. Scott takes over, 
moving to block the next blitz, shifting focus. How's business? He asks David. David sits back. He's wearing his standard uniform, khakis and a button-down shirt. His hair is trimmed every week. He shaves religiously each morning, admiring the smooth planes of his face in the mirror. Sales are up, he says. We made a huge foray into China last year. It's such an untapped market. I mean, they're still using powdered monkey butts to treat their headaches, for God's sake. Well, says Scott, powdered monkey butts. But he loses the joke and spends a moment chewing his tongue trying to get it back. They wait for him to recover, but he doesn't. The company asked me to help open the Beijing office, says David. It's a great opportunity, but I couldn't do that to the kids. Going to New York every week is hard enough. I know, says Tracy. We hate having him gone so much. The kids run through the living room, circle the couch twice, then tear back out into the yard. Doris watches them, squinting. Does the girl, she says. Chloe, says Scott. Does Chloe have breasts? How old is she? Tracy and David exchange a look. She's developing a little early, Tracy admits, but it's perfectly normal. The doctor says kids are doing that more and more these days. Normal? She's what, six? She's eight, Mom, says David. I can't believe you don't know that. Doris raises her eyebrows, her mouth set and aloof. She can dish out guilt, but she steadfastly refuses to acknowledge it when it's lobbed back at her. Your father just died, she says. You're lucky I can still tie my shoes. Touché. She knows the best defense is a good offense. David wants to tell her to go fuck herself, but he doesn't. How's the apartment? Tracy asks Doris. A rookie mistake she recognizes instantly. Doris, the defensive tackle, pivots easily around the block, rushes the QB. Never ask the woman to express an opinion. Given the opportunity, she will always complain. It's like Nazis, she says. That building, it's run by Nazis. Well, says Tracy, I'm sure they're not actual Nazis. There's never anyone in the halls, says Doris. It's like something out of Kafka. Ask her about Joe, says Scott mischievously, a glint in his eye. Who's Joe? David wants to know. He says it cautiously, knowing he's being set up. He's nobody, says Doris. Joe is her roommate. Her roommate, parrots David. He hates not having all the information beforehand, having to plot his way around in the dark. Ignorance is the fastest way to lose a sale. He's Cindy's father, says Doris. And a nudist, apparently, says Scott. Not to mention a close personal friend of Jesus Christ. Doris makes a face. He's harmless and he runs errands. Are you making this up? David wants to know. A nudist Christian with the same name as his father. It seems like a joke. Two dead fathers walk into a bar. I swear, says Scott. I've seen him with my own eyes. All of him. Believe me, I wish I hadn't. Okay, says Doris. So he's a little weird. But what choice do I have? I don't see any of you up there taking care of me. We have lives, Mom, says David. Responsibilities. And what am I, a stranger? Doris, says Tracy, reacquiring her target, moving in for the block. We've talked about you moving down to L.A., about finding you a place. I can't breathe this air, you know that. It's brown. 
Well, we can't move to Portland now, can we? Says David, using his senior vice president voice, his most patronizing tone. I have a career, and the kids are in school. He glances at Scott, who shakes his head. Don't look at me. I have a life too, a job, friends. It's nice to know I'm such a burden to my children, says Doris. David sees red. He refuses to be manipulated, blackmailed in his own house. He starts to speak. Tracy sees his anger rising, reaches over, touches his arm. They've talked about this, about not letting Doris get to him, her emotional bullying. You're not a burden, she says. We love having you. It's just you can't expect us to drop everything. You have a place to live, people who take care of you. You seem like you're doing fine. Well, I'm not, she says. They sit in silence for a moment. David stares out into the yard, watches his kids play. He would give all the money he has to be out there with them right now, pitching the wiffle ball, running the bases. He takes a deep breath. It's a question of time management. They'll eat in half an hour. He'll drive Doris to her hotel. Then there are only nine more days to get through. You just have to put your head down and muscle through. He is a man with two wives, for God's sake. If he can navigate that, he can navigate this, nine days with his mother. Scott's cell phone rings. They watch as he pulls it from his pocket. Excuse me, he says, and goes into the kitchen. There's another quiet moment. Then Tracy speaks up. You'll like the hotel, she tells Doris. It's beautiful. Trying to get rid of me already, Doris says. Tracy smiles. Not at all. Like I said, we love having you. We'd ask you to stay, but I know you can't do the stairs. With this, she stands, hoisting the baby onto her hip. Excuse me, I have to check on dinner. David throws her a pleading look, but her back is to him. His heart rate increases, sweat beads forming on his brow. His defender is abandoning him, giving up, leaving him exposed. She walks off the field without looking back, and then he's alone in the living room with his mother, like the whole front four of the Chicago Bears bearing down. You look good, he says. She smiles to show him she knows he's kidding. I'm lonely, she says. He doesn't want to do this, to have her open up to him. It's easier to joust, to have her play her role, the kvetching mother, and have him play his, the all-suffering responsible son. I'm sure you are, he says, but you have people up there taking care of you. Strangers, she says. Everyone keeps asking me, where's your family? I say, what family? He watches the kids play on the swings in the backyard. Remember when we were little, he says, a thousand years ago? You and Dad, how you kept all those beer cans for us to make a robot out of? And we spent like a week gluing them all together, made this crazy robot, and then the cleaning lady threw it out? Even as he tells this story, he sees how fucked up it is. He and Scott were like that damn cat, playing with the refuse of his parents' addictions, fashioning toys out of wine bottles, cigarette wrappers, but now that he's told it, he's forced to embrace the story in an effort to find common ground. He's trying to wrench his mother out of the present and into the past, a better time. Trying to relate to her as a parent, an equal. Isn't it fun to have kids? Aren't we both grown-ups now, deserving of respect? 
He can see from her face that it isn't working. The obstacle between them is too big, her descent too deep. Your kids got so big, she says. It is an accusation, like he has done it on purpose, hidden them away, fed them steroids, urging them to greater and greater heights. They're amazing, says David, responding to the statement, not her tone. Christopher just got his green belt in karate, and Chloe is... We're thinking of skipping third grade. She's reading at such an advanced level. And she's got tits. David doesn't know what to say to this. Doris sips her wine. I just wish someone would tell me what to do, she says, where to go. Well, what do you want to do, Mom? I don't know. I'm just so tired. Maybe if you stop sedating yourself, he thinks. It's still really soon, he says. It's only been a few months since Dad died. David can't bring himself to say the words out loud. You ask a question, you get a symphony, says Doris, smiling her most self-pitying smile. The brave warrior struggling against overwhelming odds. How can you not feel sorry for me? Rush to my rescue. No, says David. It's fine. I like symphonies. I just think you need to go easy on yourself. Rest up. Make sure you eat. You're exhausted, underweight. A few big meals, a good night's sleep. You'll feel a lot better. Hmm, she says. And he can tell she doesn't believe in such a thing, recovery. She has no proof such a thing exists. In her mind, once you fall, you don't get up again. Tracy comes back from the kitchen with Scott. David looks at them the way a castaway eyes his rescue helicopter. Do you want to start the grill? Tracy asks him. He can see from her face that she feels bad for abandoning him. This is her out. She's like a wrestler reaching into the ring for the tag. My turn. He jumps to his feet. Consider it done, he says, and goes out into the backyard. It is a thing of beauty, his backyard. A plush green expanse, surrounded by eucalyptus trees. There's a tasteful black fence around the pool. The water a deep, satisfying blue. The color of a glacier, a summery Italian sky. The whole thing, the house, the yard, is a symbol of arrival, a magazine spread for achievement. I made this happen, he thinks. And the thought is soothing, reassuring. All of it. Look where I came from, the apathy, the impulse to fail. Look what I've accomplished. The yard is his pep talk, his halftime locker room speech. Standing in his yard, looking at his pool, his kids, he feels like a hero, a survivor who has triumphed in the face of overwhelming odds, mind over matter. The kids are still on the swings, kicking their toes toward the sky. He opens the lid of the grill, turns on the gas. The burners light with a satisfying woof, blue flame leaping. He runs the steel brush of the grill, even though the Mexican woman who cleans scrubs it every other day. But this is part of the ritual. You prep the grill, clean it, heat the metal, then apply the meat, the vegetables, inhaling the malty aroma, enjoying the percussive sizzle. Scott comes out of the house. Hey, he says, I'm not going to stay. What? I've got like a splitting headache. I need to lie down. Just go up to our room, close the door. The kids won't bother you. Scott looks at him. The look embodies in seconds the following conversation. Scott, 
Don't do this. You and I both know that I'm leaving because I've spent the last three days with her, listening to all the complaints. If I don't go now, I'm going to split someone's head open, probably my own. David, just a little longer. I can't do it by myself. I'm not ready. Scott, buddy, there's not enough money in the world to keep me here. I'm 20 minutes away from a beer and a swimming pool and a crowd of beautiful women in bikinis. David closes the lid of the grill. The kids will be disappointed, he says. Don't leave me. I'll be back tomorrow. Don't make a scene. Let me slip out quietly and one day I'll return the favor. Do you need me to drive you? Can I escape too? That's okay. I called a cab. Nice try, but you've got to stay to cover my tracks. Tracy comes out with a platter of meat. Scott's going, says David, sounding wounded. Tracy looks at Scott sympathetically, nods. I understand completely, she says. I'll be back tomorrow to play with the kids, Scott tells her. Great, she says. They'd love that. A taxi pulls into the driveway, honking. The three of them head back into the house. What's happening, says Doris. I'm heading to my hotel, says Scott. I've got a splitting headache and I need to lie down. Doris looks at him. She knows she's being abandoned, scraped off on her other son like a game of hot potato. I guess I'll see you back there, she says. Actually, says Scott, I'm not staying at the same place. Too expensive. This catches Doris off guard. That's ridiculous, she says. I'll pay. He feels the trap closing, but won't succumb. That's okay. I like staying someplace a little more downscale. It's more my speed. David and Tracy watch this exchange the way you watch the Nature Channel wondering if the lion is going to catch the gazelle. Who's going to watch out for me? Doris wants to know. I'm sure the staff at the hotel will be more than happy to get you anything you need, Tracy offers. Scott gives her an appreciative look. The taxi honks again. He leans down, kisses his mother's cheek. I'll see you tomorrow, he says, heading to the hall for his luggage. They watch him go. A sailboat floating off into the sunset, leaving behind all the woes of the world. They eat in the dining room. After everyone is served, Christopher bows his head. God bless Mommy and Daddy. God bless Chloe and Sam. God bless Grandma and Uncle Scott. Amen. Doris looks at the boy like he's insane. What the fuck was that? She says. David shakes his head at her. Language... Christopher likes to say grace before we eat, says Tracy. We respect his right to do it. Doris shakes her head. In her mind, religion is the sign of a weak mind, the crutch of the lowbrow and the average. As far as she's concerned, whatever promise her grandson once showed, he is now destined to end up in a trailer park drinking beer from a can and giving all his money to fish-eyed televangelists on TV. Tracy begins a long monologue about the kids how they're doing in school, what they dressed up as for Halloween. She tells Doris that she and the kids will follow Doris and her sons to New York on Friday, after the kids get out of school. Don't put yourself to too much trouble, Doris says. She is now clearly drunk. A stranger might not be able to tell, but David can. He notes the telltale slowness, the subtle lack of focus. In his mother, true drunkenness looks just like sleep, the way his kids can't keep their eyes open after ten o'clock at night, the way they fall asleep in mid-sentence. 
another glass of wine, and his mother will pass out right where she's sitting. Don't be silly, says Tracy. It's Joe's memorial. Of course we want to be there. David nods. The whole thing is very tricky. New York, after all, is home to the other wife, Joy. For weeks he considered the logistics, before deciding that the only way he could go to New York for the memorial and have Tracy and the kids come would be to tell Joy that he couldn't make his regular weekly visit, that he was staying in L.A. In other words, to lie. But then, of course, one lie leads naturally to another. The key is not to run into Joy or any of her friends, to slip into town and operate under the radar, as they say, which is why he's booked them rooms at the Waldorf, well above Joy's usual urban circle. He will be in New York for three days, and his plan is not to go below 14th Street, except for the memorial. All he has to do is steer clear of their usual downtown terrain, and he should be fine. After dinner, David suggests that Christopher show his grandmother some of his karate moves. Chris runs upstairs to put on his uniform. David goes into the garage to see if he can find a board. He is still flushed with pride in the boy, wants to show his mother that no matter what she thinks, the impossible is sometimes possible. Miracles do happen if you believe, if you banish doubt from your mind. Look at him and Joy. If you'd asked him in the beginning, he would have said there was no way he could maintain two families on two coasts without either discovering the truth. But it has been almost a year now, and they've all settled into a comfortable routine. So don't tell me there's no magic in the world. I have proof. He comes back into the dining room carrying a piece of three-quarter-inch plywood. Christopher is already there, showing his grandmother some of his moves, arms sweeping smoothly, legs kicking. He grunts under his breath as he hits each pose, brow furrowed with concentration. He is as adorable as any child has ever been, so true and pure of heart. His sister claps after each routine, licking ice cream from her spoon. When Chris is finished with his floor exercise, David stands with the board. Wait till you see this, he says. He holds the board up in front of his stomach. Christopher approaches, touches the wood with his fingertips. He studies it, familiarizing himself with the grain, even leans forward and smells it, inhaling the pulpy aroma, the musty odors of the garage. He can't break that, says Doris. Are you crazy? We don't say can't in this house, David tells her, still energized from this afternoon's lesson in the power of positive thinking. We believe in visualizing things. He holds the board tight, looking down at the top of his son's head that sandy brown spiral. How many nights has he breathed in the boy's smell, listened to his gentle snoring? And now his son is becoming a man, capable, competent. It is a testament to good parenting, he thinks, a sign of their success. Well, says Doris, I'm visualizing a lot of weeping and carrying on. David reaches out and touches his son's head. Don't listen to her, he says. You can do this. Christopher steps back from the board. He measures the distance with his arm. David steadies the board. Everyone's eyes are on him. He glances at his wife, his daughter. They are hypnotized, nervous. Everyone wants this trick to work. They want to demonstrate the magic of which their family is capable, to share it. Even the baby is watching, food splattered across his pudgy face. Do it, thinks David. Do it. Show her that in this house we can accomplish anything we set our minds to. 
Christopher closes his eyes, takes a deep breath. For God's sake, says Doris, he's just a kid. Christopher opens his eyes. He looks up at his dad. And in that moment, David sees doubt. Just a kid. The words hang in the air, dismissive, reductive. Don't listen to her, says David. You can do it, just like this afternoon. Christopher nods, readies himself. Watching him, David is filled suddenly with doubt. This afternoon was a fluke, he thinks, an anomaly. It was someone else's son breaking that board. A tough kid from a confident family. A well-balanced kid who doesn't have the gene of collapse lurking in his blood. Christopher pulls his hand back. Strikes. There's a sickening whack. The board shivers in David's hand, but doesn't break. Christopher cries out in pain, clutching his fist to his stomach. The sound of impact lingers in David's mind, the meaty smack of failure. There is no magic in the world. He sees this now. There is only disappointment, raised hopes, and the predictable descent of ruin. He drops the board, kneels, pulling his son to him. Let me see it, he says, trying to pry the wounded hand loose. Christopher is reluctant to let go. He knows that only the pressure of his fingers is keeping the hand together. I told you, says Doris. Why doesn't anyone ever listen to me? This is all your fault, shouts David, glaring at her. My fault, she says. How's it my fault? You have to believe, don't you understand? You have to believe for it to work. His mother looks at him pityingly. Listen to yourself, what you're saying. He's a little boy. It's a piece of wood. The whole thing was crazy right from the start. He glares at her with pure hatred. She is the problem, the kryptonite. He has seen the magic with his own eyes, has seen dreams come true, all the miracles, his children born and raised, his career blossoming, his beautiful wives. But now his mother has come and spoiled everything, just like she always does, with her doubt and her undermining, godless critique. Christopher isn't crying, though it's clear he's in pain. He's being brave for his father. Tracy comes over and kneels next to them. Let mommy see, sweetie, she says, gently prying his wounded hand loose. She examines it. The knuckles are red. She reaches out and touches them gently one by one. Does that hurt? She wants to know. He shakes his head, though it's clear it does. Tracy looks at David. I'm sure he's fine, she says. But why don't you run him over to the emergency room just to be sure? David nods. In a sick way, he is glad. It will give him a chance to escape. You can drop your mother at the hotel on the way, she continues. He nods. Her point is clear. That's enough for one day. Enough awkward silences, enough negativity. Come on, Mom, he says. I'll take you to the hotel. Doris gets shakily to her feet. They help her to the car. She will be asleep before they arrive, her head thrown back, snoring quietly. It has been a long day, a long trip, a long life. In the back seat, Christopher will sing quietly to himself, clutching his throbbing hand, his voice like a distant seagull, while up front David watches the road like a good father, a good driver, checking his mirrors every time he changes lanes.